You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Pull out your Bibles this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew near you. We want you to have God's Word open and in front of you. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, Just encourage you in that. Um, But uh, this morning, um, I have nothing for you. Um, All I have is... God's word, and we come together um, to see what God has said. Uh, And so that's our hope, is that we look at this text and nobody walks away thinking, well, that pastor had an interesting thought, but rather look at what the word of God has said. So that's our hope and our goal. Um, Happy Thanksgiving. Um, What what an awesome thing that, that our culture continues to set aside a day, a national holiday, for the purpose of being thankful kind of does beg the question um, for all of the most important things in life. To whom exactly are you thankful? What does it mean to give thanks without understanding a a benevolent creator God? Um, But that's okay. Um, I'm more than willing to overlook that. Um, Embrace this weekend as an opportunity first in our own hearts to be thankful, um, to to feast and to celebrate uh, the goodness of God, to give thanks to him. Uh, And then maybe secondarily, it's an opportunity for us um, to just push on our culture a little bit, just to press on that, let them see and and feel this this very right desire that is in them, um, this inescapable urge to be thankful to somewhere. and, And because as much as they deny it, they know there is a God, uh, and they do owe him a a debt of gratitude. Uh, And so what a great opportunity for us to let some of those cracks in the culture show and then engage that with the reality of who God is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, typically, um, just in our conviction as a church to expository preaching and working through the books of the Bible, um, we would just carry on in our series um, through Thanksgiving, um, you know, Christmas, Easter, those certainly deserve a little more of our attention, but Mother's Day, Father's Day, Remembrance Day, um, you know, we're, we're just going to kind of keep plodding along. Um, and yet, in the Lord's providence, and, and often just because of the richness in his word, um, as we come to the next text in the passage, um, there's something that applies to that holiday, something that uh, speaks to what's going on in the world around us. Um, this week is a little different, though. Um, as I opened up to the text for this morning, <clears throat> I mean, I should say carefully planned last year as I mapped out the, no, the schedule's all been shuffled and changed and nothing is where I planned it to be. Um, but opening up this text, if I was looking for a Thanksgiving text, this, this would have been on the list. Um, it, it's, it's filled with Thanksgiving and the implications of it. And so here we are providentially on Thanksgiving um, working through this. From the beginning of chapter three, um, Paul has been kind of unpacking the, the reality of, of this new life in Christ. What does this mean? 
Did I tell you to turn to Colossians chapter 3? I don't know if I said that. That's where we are. Um, Colossians chapter 3. Um, we'll be getting at um, verses 15 to 17 this morning. Uh, but beginning chapter 3, is he's unpacking this new life in Christ. For those who have trusted in Jesus, who have been made new, what should that new life look like? How do we live this out and, he, and he's talked about putting off sin, um, putting to death sexual morality and passion and evil desires and covetousness, as well as anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, put that all off like an old dirty pair of clothes. And then verses 12 to 14 are the other side of that, put on these virtues, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and above all, he says, putting on love, which, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that's the, the picture that he's painted of what this new life looks like. And as we come to our text this morning, it's a little more focused on the how. How do we do that? How, how do we make these things happen in our lives? How do we produce this and uh, what, what drives this change, what motivates it, makes it possible. And he gives three different answers, uh, verses 15 to 17, kind of one answer per verse. It's nicely broken down. Uh, but you'll notice in each answer, two elements remain the same, Christ and thanksgiving. Christ and thanksgiving. Let me read it for you, and you'll, you'll see this right away. Starting in uh, Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ... Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, in ev do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you pray with me? Father, we come to you on this Thanksgiving Sunday knowing who you are as the giver of every good gift, the creator of this world, the one who provides and sustains, but so much more than that, the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, what has sent his son for our salvation. God, we are thankful. We are thankful. Help us this morning as we look at living out this new life in Christ, understanding what it means, understanding how thanksgiving plays a part in this transformation work. God, give us eyes to see your truth. Give us hearts that are soft. Lord, we invite your spirit to be at work through your word. Um, to work on our conscience, to call us to repentance, convict us of sin where we need it, to strengthen us, encourage us. God, would you be shaping this church more and more to the image of Christ, that we would be faithful in living out this new life for the glory of your name. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at how to live this new life in Christ, how to kind of put off these vices, put on these virtues, how to live together in, in unity and, and love as the church. The, the first thing Paul says here, back in uh, verse 15, uh, is let the peace of Christ rule. 
That's point one. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let me read it again just so it's laser focused right in front of us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now we're going to understand what it means to let the peace of Christ rule. Um, We need to first understand what the peace of Christ is. So um, in our rather individualistic culture, I think we tend to immediately jump to kind of personal peace, inner peace. That's, that's where we go when we read things like the peace of Christ, and we try to kind of shoehorn that into this text. I don't think that's what this is about. Paul introduced uh, this peace back in chapter 1, verse 20, and he says, um, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself God was, sorry, I skipped lines. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God is reconciling this broken, sinful world to himself, making peace in Jesus by the blood of his cross. That's the the peace of Jesus Christ, that we have peace with God. We were at war with him in our sinfulness We deserved his wrath. But through Jesus' death in our place on the cross, we we have peace. We have peace with God. And so though our salvation is in one sense very personal, it is at the the same time very communal. Because this peace that brings us near to God also brings us near to one another. We are brought near to God in one body as this new family of God, a new people of God. You remember uh, chapter 3, back in, in, in verse 11. Paul said, Here, being in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The, the divisions, the things that used to separate us culturally and socially and in our kind of religious heritage, those things all get set aside. None of it matters anymore. That's not the point. We're united in Christ. The things that divide us are so much smaller, pale in comparison, fall away in light of being united in Christ, this new people of God, a new nation, a new social group, a new culture is formed, a group that's not defined by anything other than than Jesus. That's why Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called. So we're called to peace as one body. We're called as the body of Christ. And so his peace reconciles us to God and unites us together in one new family. And that peace, the peace of Christ purchased on the cross, is what ought to rule in our hearts. The word rule there uh, is a word uh, originally used of an umpire, maybe a referee in a sports arena. So think of a baseball game. The umpire stands there in authority. Every pitch, he calls it. That one's a ball. That one's a strike. Every runner, he makes the call. This one's safe. That one's out. He rules the game. And Paul says, let let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. As thoughts, emotions, words come into our hearts, as you think about the the, the right things to say or do, how, how do you judge those things? 
By what standard do we decide? This is a good thought. This is a bad thought. This feeling is right. This feeling is wrong. How do we judge? How do we know? Tell you what, our world judges very easily. It's really quite simple because I'm the authority. And so if I'm angry at someone or I resent someone or I don't like someone, that's automatically right. Why? Because I feel it. Because I think it and my heart is the arbiter of right and wrong. My heart judges. Paul says, no. No, submit your heart. Subject your heart. Correct, confront your heart. Make it obedient to Christ. As Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We don't judge. I I don't have the right to think and feel and say and do whatever I think is, is right or good. It's the peace of Christ that ought to rule. And so as you're having conversations, as you're interacting with others, as you're making decisions, as you're posting things on social media, are you letting the peace of Christ rule? Are you letting that be the standard, be the authority? Will this bring increased peace among the body of Christ? Here's a helpful grid to just run everything through. And if so, guess what? That's the end of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies. Uh, They don't fit. They They don't pass the standard. They don't make it. What place do those have in one body that is called to peace? Does that describe you? Does that describe us as we fellowship together? And then, here it is, seemingly out of the blue, Paul says, and be thankful. Just kind of tacked on. Where did that come from, Paul? Like, what? This is just out of nowhere. Well, it's not. It's not random. This is the key to the peace of Christ ruling. This is the key that turns the lock. What posture of the heart allows for the peace of Christ to rule? Thankfulness. Gratitude. Now, To be precise, I think this pushes us deeper, right, further than our our kind of Thanksgiving traditions or maybe what we see on the sitcoms. Um, This this is not just, you know, I'm thankful that there's food in the fridge. I'm thankful we have a roof over our heads. I'm thankful for friends and family. That's, That's great. That's fine. We ought to be thankful for those things. But there's something more, something specific for which we ought to be thankful Paul's already laid the foundation of this, this thankfulness again back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, give thanks to the Father. There it is. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're to be thankful for, specifically, pointedly. This goes back to to last week. We we talked about kind of living out of our identity, understanding who we are in Christ, and letting that then shape and and form how we live. Um, The clearest example was verse 13, um, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If we understand, let's bring that into thanksgiving. If we're thankful for having been forgiven, thankful, of course, means that you realize you didn't deserve it. 
Realize that that you didn't earn your forgiveness. You're thankful because your forgiveness was given to you as an undeserved gift. It was grace. And if you're grateful for that, appreciating it for what it is, then you're going to be so much quicker to extend that grace to others. To forgive the sins of others against you, even when they don't deserve it, because you were forgiven when you didn't deserve it. Our thankfulness is is tilling the soil of our hearts. It's as we look with thankfulness at this undeserved gift that we've received, this, this is preparing our hearts to, to produce fruit. The fruit of being gracious toward others, of, of pursuing unity and, and peace together with, with people who aren't like us, with people who, who might think or, or do differently from us, people who we might think don't deserve our kindness. If you're struggling with letting the peace of Christ rule, you have a thankfulness problem. You're not fully gripped by the reality of what Christ did for you. Proper thankfulness toward the Lord allows the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts as it should. So let the peace of Christ rule. That's kind of step one in in living in this new life in Christ, producing these, these virtues, living this out. The second uh, is let the word of Christ dwell. It's verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the peace of Christ is to rule over us as we live together, and the word of Christ is to dwell in us. Among us. Let's get a firm grasp again of what Paul means by the the word of Christ. What's he talking about? Well, again, the the context gives us that. Colossians 1.5 I think is helpful. Paul says, um, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth. the, The word about the truth, the message of the truth, which is the gospel. Again, uh, chapter 3, the, the word of Christ is, is the, the message about Jesus, which is the gospel. It's the word of God. And so very narrowly, we could say that kind of precise message of, of Jesus dying on the cross and, and forgiveness in him through repentance and faith. Uh, but, but in a broader sense, It's all of God's word. The the whole Bible is the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. And there's such hope in that. Such power wrapped up in this sentence to let the the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Just think about that for a moment. This word, James 1.21. Put away, therefore, all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word word which is able to save your souls the word of Christ is God's tool for our salvation John 17 17 Jesus uh, praying his high priestly prayer praying for the church that was to come saying sanctify them in the truth your word is truth the word of God is is his tool for our salvation and for our sanctification 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. 
All scripture is breathed out by God. It is the word of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is enough. It's sufficient to make us complete in Christ, to to teach us, correct us, to train us. Not, not only to save us and sanctify us, but to equip us for every good work. That's the power of the word of God. That's what it is that Paul's saying, let that dwell among you. See what that does, dwelling richly in your midst. There's power there. The word of God at work. It ought to saturate our thinking. As Psalm 1 says, the, the blessed man, right? his delight is in the law of the Lord. and his law, he meditates day and night. So Christian, are you letting the word dwell in you richly? Do you, do you realize this thing that you hold in your hands right now? The very word of God, trustworthy and true, living and active, powerful to save, to sanctify, to prepare you for every good work written down and dropped in your lap. No generation has had it this good. You've got 17 different translations you can choose from. It's God's word for us. Absolutely, we ought to be taking advantage of that, reading God's word on a regular basis, and not just reading it, but soaking in it, letting it take up dwelling in us. But personal daily Bible reading is not actually Paul's focus here. Um, That's not specifically what he's talking about. The focus is the word of Christ dwelling richly in us, among us, corporately. And first, he says, as we teach and admonish one another. We, we teach and admonish one another. The, the word of Christ is dwelling in us as a body, as we rub shoulders with one another, as we live together, teaching one another, admonishing, correcting one another. I hope this isn't new to you. Um, We've talked about this a few times. The church is not supposed to be this this kind of top-down pyramid structure. That's not how it works. Ephesians 4.12 says very clearly, if you're a believer, you are a minister in the church. You're on duty. I think we need to maybe print off some more name tags, give everyone a nice official name tag. Maybe we could go a bit Anglican and give everybody a collar. Like that would make you uncomfortable. New people would come in like, what is this church about? This is weird. Um, But we're ministers. You are. You are a servant, an official role in the church of Jesus Christ. And one of your jobs is to teach, admonish one another. That's true. The elders are to be uniquely gifted in teaching. They're to preach the word faithfully to, be, uh, to the gathered saints, to, to guard the church from false teaching, both from outside and inside. But that's not where the teaching and admonishing of the church is to end. Um, listen to Paul's words, uh, Romans 15, 14. Paul says to the church in Rome, the church that he had never met, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You're able. You've got what you need. They had his letter, the book of Romans, and they had the Holy Spirit in them. He says, you're off to the races, be teaching, admonishing one another. You're able to do it. 
Ephesians 4.15 It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How do we grow? We grow speaking the truth in love to one another. That's, that's teaching and admonishing. This is how we operate as the church. Speaking the truth in love to one another, we, we grow. This is body life. This is what it means to, to be the church. This calls for something more than just a Sunday morning Christianity. Gathering here for, for worship, for, uh, for fellowship, for preaching together. This is, this is vital. It's a key piece of the Christian life. But just as vital is to have meaningful relationships that go beyond here. That, that happen outside of this place. Being involved in one another's lives. That's one of the many, many one another commands that, that drives us to do small groups the way that we do it. To, to encourage and, and facilitate those kinds of relationships within the church. We need that. Do you have that? Are there people in your life who will admonish you when you sin? Who will teach you and help you see the richness of God's grace more fully? Are we teaching one another? Is the word of Christ dwelling richly among us? Are you sharing with others what you're learning in God's word? Are you, are you quick to, to, to share? This is a, a gospel truth that has just been precious to me lately. Are you bold enough in love and gentleness and the right relationship to say, brother, this is sin. You need to repent. Or, or you've been thinking about this a little wrong, I think. Let me, let's, let's go to God's word together. Admonishing, correcting one another. That's hard. The word there, nutheos, it means specifically to correct wrong thinking. And that's often what is needed as a brother or sister is in sin or maybe falling into despair or has a wrong view of God. We, we need someone to love us enough to, to point us back to who God is, to, to remind us of his faithfulness, his goodness, his grace. As we teach and admonish one another, the word of Christ dwells among us. We, we, we give space for the word of Christ to be at work, saving, sanctifying, edifying. And it's rich. That's the first way. There's another element here, though. Another way that the word of Christ is to be dwelling among us richly. Did you see it? Look at the logic there um, in verse 16. He gives the, the command, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Teaching and admonishing. So he has these, these ING words, these participles there. And then there's a third one, singing. The word of Christ dwells in us richly as we sing. Well, what does that have to do with it? How does that fit in, right? And singing is for worship or maybe, you know, I'm just not much of a singer. I'm kind of more of an intellectual. I'm, I'm more of a word doctrine kind of guy and that feels good and that's a firm place to stand and, and, and we like our doctrine and, and that's wrong. It's just wrong. You can't make that division. One of the crucial ways that the word of Christ dwells among us is through song. Singing is a word-centered activity. We sing. It's a, a again, this, this communal aspect. Um, we sing to the Lord, but we also sing to one another. 
I know you're like, I hope no one else could hear me. Well, no, they should hear you. But my voice isn't that great. It's not about your voice. It's about the, the words that we're proclaiming together. Um, Ephesians 5.19 um, says that we are to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. So yes, to the Lord in your heart, worshiping him, but at the same time, we're addressing one another in song. And again, in our culture, we, we go so quickly to the, the individualistic and we say, oh, it was such a great time of worship. We, we turned down the lights. It was like everything else faded away. It was just me and Jesus and nobody else. And, and, and that's not what God had in mind. That was not his plan for worship in the church. One of the key elements of, of worship in song is this one another aspect, addressing one another. And in that, the word of Christ dwells among us. And I think there's two ways uh, that the word of Christ dwells richly through song. Uh, and it's because good singing teaches and good teaching sings. Let me unpack that for you. Firstly, good singing teaches. Right? I was chatting with somebody yesterday uh, about the power of music and song. And she just brought up that line that I think every one of us has tried Right? You were listening to that terrible, terrible music as a teenager and, uh, and your parents didn't approve. And, and uh, what did you say? Mom, I just listened to it for the, for the tune or for the beat. Right? I'm, not, I'm not interested in the words. I'm not even listening to the words. Yeah, how'd that go for you? Anyone else here have like way too many bad 90s songs that they know all the words to? Or maybe they're 70s songs? Um, Right? It stuck. It happened. We do, I wasn't even much of a music guy. That wasn't my thing. But, but these songs come on. And my wife was like, how do you know that? And why are you singing it? Turn the channel. Um, but, but we remember those things. Because when words are put to music, it sticks. It's powerful. They, they move us in a different way. Singing is this unique gift from the Lord. Nothing else sings. You get that, right? Like birds make these nice little tunes, but they don't really sing. Even angels, if you look closely at Scripture, um, they say, holy, holy, holy. They say glory to God in the highest. Humans sing. It's a gift that God has given us um, uniquely, and, and it's, it's attached to the heart. And so it's actually not just good singing that teaches, all singing teaches, just good singing teaches well, good singing teaches truth. That's a huge part of what happened in the Reformation. For, for hundreds of years before Luther, um, the church would gather and the choir would sing. And the people would sit passive and actually they would sing in Latin. The people didn't even really know what was going on. Luther came on the scene said, no, 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 this ain't going to happen. It's not the way this is going to go down. And he wrote 36 hymns in the common German language. He put them to well-known melodies out of bar tunes and folk songs. And he compiled a hymn book and he started spreading this, this hymn book across the country. And, and they were not light and fluffy platitudes. It was, it was Reformation doctrine put to music. We, we still sing one of them today, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther in 1528. Awesome. 
It's often noted Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis, his, his statement of, of, of these things that needed to be addressed in the Catholic Church in 1517. And it was not until the mid-1520s that the Reformation really began to take root and take off. And a large part of that was because Luther's songbook had worked its way out across the countryside. And the church was being reformed from the inside out, from the bottom up. As they were singing truth, it began to change the church. Good singing teaches we sing together, we, we proclaim gospel truths to ourselves and, and to one another. And so my doctrine and my faith needs your singing. It's built up as I hear you sing. This is one of the reasons we believe that, that live streaming church was helpful. It was a tool that we used for a season, but let's be clear, it was a stopgap measure. It was a short-term kind of filling the holes. It was not, it's not what church was meant to be. Church online is a contradiction in terms. That, that, that's not a long-term solution. And so I just want to implore those of you who might be watching online. I, I get it. There are different reasons. Maybe you couldn't make it today. Um, but, but we need to prioritize this. We need to prioritize being together. And so that's also why we believe that it's so important to carefully choose the songs that we sing. We're not just singing whatever's new and, and fresh, hot off the press, but every song is carefully critiqued. What is this song teaching? Are these words that, that I would preach from the pulpit um, before it's added to our repertoire? Good singing teaches. But that's only half the story. Um, good teaching sings, and that's equally important. Good teaching sings. Our theology is not complete without doxology, right? The truth of the gospel, the truth about who God is, cannot end in the head. It has to break forth into the heart. It's, it's not enough to know the truth. We have to love the truth, right? A cold, clinical dissection of who God is doesn't glorify him. That's not the goal of teaching True knowledge of God, the kind of knowing him that honors him, finds its fullness, its climax in, in worship. If your teaching doesn't break forth into singing, it's lacking in a detrimental way. Singing as God's gift to us, this, this divine tool that takes these truths from our heads and embeds them on our hearts. That's what it's about. The word of Christ dwells in us richly as we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. There it is again. Thankfulness. Thankfulness and worship. They're, they're almost synonymous. They go together. Um, let's just flip this. The opposite of worship is what's happening in Romans 1, 21. Listen to this. Although they knew God, they knew him, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thankfulness is the heart attitude of worship. It's thankfulness that bursts forth into, into song. Through, thank, through, through thankfulness um, expressed in song, the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Good, good teaching sings. 
It awakens our hearts to overflow in worship. Little tidbit here as we look at this passage. One of the perennial battles of the church has been the battle of worship. You may not even know this. There are branches of the church where their songbook is here. It is the 150 psalms in the Bible. That is what is proper to be sung in the church. Many of us grew up in churches or were aware of churches where the hymn book was the collection of appropriate songs. We sing hymns in our church. That is what is proper for the people of God to sing. And then came those sneaky praise songs and Maranatha songs, and they started working their way in. Some of those even made their way into the hymn books. Now what do we do? We can't even tell the difference between the two. How are we supposed to know which ones to sing, which ones are hymns and which ones are praise songs? I don't know about Zambia and what they were singing, but it probably doesn't fit either of those categories. It's a whole new animal. Take a deep breath. Look at Colossians 3.16. Paul says we're to be singing psalms. That's the book of psalms that he's talking about rather specifically. And then we're to be singing hymns. But the word there is just massively broad. It just means praise songs. Songs of praise. It would be a hymn sung to a, a conquering king as he returned victoriously or to a deity. But, but, but hymns, songs of praise. And then we're to be singing spiritual songs. Which again, not really sure exactly what Paul's referring to. Except that it's not hymns and it's not psalms. Um, and we're to be singing them. What's the point? Maybe it doesn't really matter how we categorize different kinds of songs, but rather that the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly as we sing. That we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth with, with theological accuracy and, and joyful worship joined together. One of the oldest songs Psalm 96 commands us to, to sing new songs. Interesting, Revelation 15.3. Those at the end of days who have overcome the beast, they're worshiping the Lord, singing the song of Moses, one of the oldest songs that we have. And then Revelation 14.3, the redeemed church can be found singing to the Lord a new song. It would, it would be foolish to leave behind the richness of the hymns that the church has cherished. Maybe some of them aren't as rich as others. Um, but there are songs there that have lasted for hundreds of years for good reason. And it would be disobedient, frankly. And, and, and I venture to say would, would draw into question our, our love for the Lord and our understanding of his glory if we were not seeking and writing and incorporating new songs, new expressions of his goodness and grace. It's not about the, the categories of songs we sing. It's about the word of Christ dwelling in us richly as we sing all kinds of songs addressing one another with thankfulness to God. So, Sing, sing, come gather together and, and sing. Let your hearts be moved and awakened. Let the music help your slow heart to worship our God, to see his greatness, to treasure it, to love it. Sing it out and listen. Be conscious that we're coming corporately to worship, that we are declaring these things as a body, as a family together. Listen to your brothers and your sisters declaring these truths alongside you. Let the peace of Christ rule. 
Living in unity together, let the word of Christ dwell, teaching and admonishing and singing to one another. And then finally, let the name of Christ impel. That's a weird word. Why does he use weird words? Let me read verse 17 and and I'll explain it. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the peace of Christ is to rule us. The word of Christ is to dwell among us. And then the name of Christ is to impel us. And and maybe I'm getting a little picky with language, but but follow me with this. Um, If I am compelled to do something, I am forced by an authority. There is a power over me that is making me do it. If I am propelled to do something, I'm being pushed from behind like a boat with a propeller. But if I am impelled to do it, the motivation that moves me is from within. It's a heart-born movement that drives me. This is the the summary statement, I think, of of what he has been saying since the beginning of chapter 3. He starts off chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, set um, set your minds on things that are above And he gives these particulars of what that looks like, putting off these vices, putting on these virtues, living in forgiveness and love together. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell. And then I think he wraps it all together and puts a bow on it. Everything you do, do it in the name of Christ. The phrase there, in word or in deed, it's a way of saying all of life. It it was like the, the Jewish equivalent to from A to Z, right? Word, deed, everything in between, everything you do. And to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, to do something in the name of the Lord means to do it as his representative. Means you are not acting on your own authority. You are an ambassador. You are in an official position of, of representing him. And so you say and you do things that are consistent with what Jesus himself would say or do. Paul gives a very similar command, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Eating and drinking. He's he's pulling out the most simple, benign things in life. Do it all to the glory of God. Every part of our lives, public and private, visible and invisible, interior and exterior, are to be lived out, not in my own name, Not as my own master, not representing, defending, promoting myself, but representing, defending, promoting Jesus, his name. That's what it means to be a Christian. Literally, it just means a little Christ. We are a bunch of little Christs running around representing him. The new life in Christ, it's Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer my life. It's no longer me living and ruling. It's him through me. And guess what? Once again, if we're doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, why are we putting off, putting to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness. I'm not going to be marked by anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. No, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is going to produce a compassionate heart, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us and loving one another. And one last time, how do we do this? How do we produce this in our lives? Paul says, not by legalism, right? Not by a, a determined force of the will, not begrudgingly with reluctance. We're not to do it compelled by duty or, or propelled by discipline. We're to be impelled by delight. Paul says to do it giving thanks to God the Father through him, overflowing in, in joyful gratitude. That's what drives us. That's the, the motivation that transforms is a heart transformed to gratitude by the glory of the gospel. True, deep, honest thanksgiving to the Father for the single greatest gift ever given, the sacrifice of his Son on the cross for our sins. That's what transforms our hearts. That's what changes lives as we understand, as we're gripped by that truth Everything we say or do will be transformed by it. It will be done joyfully in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the, that's the fruit of true thanksgiving. I want to live this new life in Christ. I want to see uh, lives marked by these things. We start with thanksgiving. So we're going to conclude our service this morning with thanksgiving. Josh, why don't you come? We're going to celebrate communion. Remembering, again, rehearsing. His death in my place. His body broken for me. His blood poured out for me. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us as we uh, approach communion. Uh, as we sing, the ushers will hand out the elements. There's two cups stuck together. There's the bread on the, bread on the bottom, the juice on the top. Um, just hang on to it. I'll come back and we'll partake together in a moment. Father, you are so gracious to us. Lord, what could we do but be thankful having seen your grace and your kindness toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God, we come together now. I pray the peace of Christ ruling over us, the word of Christ dwelling among us as we proclaim these truths side by side. God, that we would be impelled by the name of Christ and thankfulness to transform lives, to lives consistent um, with this new life in Christ. God, remind our hearts this thanksgiving. Awaken our hearts even as we sing to the wonder of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.